This is the Mahabharata Podcast, Episode 19, Killing Jarasand. Last time, we followed Arjun on his tour of India, leaving a pregnant woman behind on nearly every stop. At his final stopover, Dwarka, Arjun even picked up a new wife, Krishna's sister, Supadra. After one year of wandering, Arjun finally returned home with his new wife. Draupadi needed some serious consolation after his year of philandering, but things finally settled down. As I said before, these were the solid days for the Pandavas. Yudhishthira was a virtuous ruler of a peaceful and happy kingdom. Draupadi gave birth to five sons, one for each husband, and even Duryodhana and Dhritarashtra seemed content with the situation. Thus, book one ends on a happy note. It could easily have said, and then they lived happily ever after, and the story could have ended right there. Instead, book two begins, and very quickly events take a turn that will inevitably end with the Great War, Kukshetra. If you were looking for causes of the Great War, a certain palace stands front and center. Near the end of the last episode, while Arjun, Krishna, and the fire god Agni were exterminating the denizens of the Kandava forest, an asura named Maya called on Arjun's protection and was spared from the massacre. Following this conflagration, after Krishna and Arjun were blessed by Agni, Maya followed after the two friends and begged to repay them for their mercy. Heroic Arjun declined to accept anything from the demon, but at Maya's insistence, Arjun suggested that he perform a service for Krishna. Maya then revealed that he was a skilled architect, the demonic equivalent of Vishvakarma who built the heavenly palaces of Devaloka. Krishna then asked Maya to construct a palace at Indraprastha for the Pandavas. Maya readily agreed and departed to a location north of Mount Kailash to retrieve jewels and gold for use in decorating this grand edifice. Maya returned with not only a mountain of gems, but also some gifts, including a powerful club equal to the Gandiva bow for Bhimasena and a conch named Devadatta, which he gave to Arjun. Maya then set to work building the most magnificent palace in the earthly realm. With a perimeter of 10,000 cubits, a cubit is approximately the length of a man's forearm, the palace must have been about 25,000 square feet. It was guarded by an army of 18,000 Rakshasa ogres and filled with riches, lotus gardens, and tame animals. The building also had deceptive qualities, such as pools of water so clear that they appeared to be solid ground. After 14 months of construction, the palace was completed, and Yudhishthira had the building consecrated, inviting Brahmins and kings from all over India. While he was having this grand housewarming party, the wandering sage Narada showed up. Narada is both the son of Brahma and also an immortal, so just like the last time he visited, Yudhishthira gave up the seat of honor in favor of the sage. Once he had been properly honored by everyone present, Narada took a seat and began quizzing Yudhishthira in a Socratic style about his governance. Once the lessons were over, Yudhishthira, naturally feeling proud of his new palace, asked Narada whether he had ever seen a palace as cool as this one. Narada replied that on earth this was definitely the coolest palace ever built, but that the realms of the gods also had some pretty fancy palaces. Like an aspiring new homebuyer, Yudhishthira wanted to hear all about these rival palaces. So Narada expounded at length on the halls of Yama, King of the Dead, Indra, Varuna, Kubera, and Brahma. I'll spare you all the details, and just stick to the two palaces that Yudhishthira was particularly interested in, those of Yama and Indra. Narada tells us that Yama's palace is pretty nice, that it is 10,000 square leagues in size, it has air conditioning, hot and cold running water, and good food. 
The most important fact is that the hall is occupied by all the great kings of the past, including Shantanu and Pandu, as well as the great and faithful Brahmins and ascetics. The point is, if you're a good king, make lots of sacrifices and support lots of Brahmins, when you die, you get to live in Lord Yama's palace, and it's pretty awesome. Indra's palace, by contrast, is 15,000 square leagues in size, and is occupied by all the gods and divine sages, such as Vyasa's father, Parasara, and the heavenly architect, Vishvakarman. Narada listed only one king as a denizen of Indra's hall, King Harishchandra. Yudhishthira noted that only one king had made it to Indra's heavenly court, while all the rest had to settle for the underworld with Yama. Naturally, the king wanted to know how Harishchandra pulled it off. Narada told him that Harishchandra had conquered the entire world, bringing all its kings under his control, and had then performed the Rajasuya sacrifice, which is a Vedic ritual that consecrates one king as emperor of the world. As part of this rite, King Harishchandra gave vast amounts of food and treasure to the world's Brahmins, literally giving them five times more stuff than even their avaricious little hearts could desire. Narada then summarized the ways a king might attain Indra's heaven. First was to perform the Rajasuya, second to die with honor on the battlefield, and third was to die as a result of austerities and self-mortification. Narada continued with a sort of message from beyond the grave. He quoted Yudhishthira's father Pandu, who said, You can conquer the earth. Your brothers obey you, so offer up the great sacrifice of the consecration. Narada seconded that suggestion, saying, Do your father's wish, tiger-like Pandava. But then he added a rather cryptic remark, saying, It is known that the sacrifice is beset with many obstacles. War follows upon it, encompassing the destruction of the earth. Reflect on this, and do what is fitting. So, after first recommending that Yudhishthira proceed with the sacrifice, Narada backpedaled a little at the end. As for Yudhishthira, the Dharma king, what option did he have? First, his own father speaks from beyond the grave, and then Narada endorses the suggestion. How could he disobey his own father? The next question was simply how to go about doing the sacrifice. After telling about all the palaces he had seen, and suggesting the Rajasuya sacrifice, Narada left Indraprastha and set out for Dwarka. Yudhishthira was left, meanwhile, obsessing on whether and how to conduct the sacrifice. He began by consulting his brothers, who were naturally supportive, and he then called a general council of all his advisors. The king's advisors described the Rajasuya Yagya as consisting of first winning the consent of all the other kings, and then making six sacrificial fires. So the main trick was to convince all the kings that Yudhishthira deserved to be their emperor. Yudhishthira's advisors left out one seemingly minor detail, however, which was that the Vedic Rajasuya sacrifice included a dice game. But the king's cousins will be happy to remind him of that part later. Having gotten assurance from his court that he was indeed worthy of performing the Rajasuya, but no practical advice on how exactly he could gain the consent of the world's kings, Yudhishthira sent a messenger to Dwarka to ask for Krishna's advice. Krishna hurried over to Indraprastha. He had just what the king was looking for, a quick way to gain ascendance over the kings of India, while Krishna could settle an old score in the process. As soon as Krishna arrived, he began explaining how Yudhishthira could quickly achieve his objective. The key to this strategy was Krishna's old enemy, Jarasand, king of Magadha. Krishna described how Jarasand had gathered together a vast alliance of kings and ever since had been piecing together an empire in east and southern India, 
He told Yudhishthira that Jarasand had even driven Krishna's people out of Mathura and had forced them to abandon the city in favor of Dwarka in modern-day Gujarat. In the course of his conquests, Jarasand had taken the defeated kings and imprisoned them. According to Krishna, he intended to sacrifice these kings to Shiva. As I've pointed out before, the rules of the game at this time were to conquer your neighbors if you could, but once you had established your dominance, you allowed the defeated kings to continue on the throne so long as he paid tribute. Thus, Jarasand was seriously breaking the rules by throwing his defeated enemies into prison. So far, he had captured 84 princes, and once he got 14 more, totaling 100, he intended to carry out his human sacrifice. Yudhishthira began pondering how he might accomplish the task of overcoming Jarasand. So he asked Krishna to tell him more about the king of Magadha. Krishna replied with a brief story of Jarasand's life. Jarasand's father, King Bahadratta, was a strong and virtuous king known for his religious devotion. He had married the twin daughters of the king of Kashi, but he was unable to conceive a child. At this time, there were no fertility clinics, but there was the next best thing, holy men. Bahadratta sought out the most austere sage in the kingdom and asked him what to do in order to conceive a son. As the sage began to speak, a mango suddenly dropped from the tree right before them. The sage picked up the fruit and gave it to the king, saying that if his wife ate the fruit, she certainly would bear him a son. As you might have noticed by now, these ancient princes commonly married multiple wives, but their first wife was always senior to all the later wives. Berhadratha's situation was different in that he married twins, and at the same time. Thus, there was no clear hierarchy between the women. As a result, it was quite impossible for the king to choose one wife over the other to take the fruit. So, together, they decided to simply divide the fruit, and each sister took half of the mango. The result was atrocious. Each of the king's two wives became pregnant, but when they gave birth, each queen bore just half a baby. The two halves were split down the middle, one hand, one leg, one ear, and one eye each. Worst of all, the two abominations were still alive. The queens were disgusted and horrified, and they ordered their handmaids to take the creatures to the forest and abandon them there. The two half-babies were left in a forest clearing to die. Not long after, a Rakshasi, a female ogress named Jara, came along and found the deformed creatures. Baby meat being a particular delicacy among Rakshasas, Jara gathered up the two half-babies and tied them together to carry them home for supper. When the two halves were brought together, however... They suddenly joined themselves into a single child. The result was a perfectly formed baby boy, who was heavy as iron and whose cries reached all the way to the palace. Even the ogress was disturbed by this turn of events, so she dropped the kid on the ground and was afraid to touch the strange abomination. Hearing the sound of the cries, the guilty king and queens went back to the forest to recover the child. When the Rakshasi realized that this child belonged to the royal family, she presented the boy to them and described what had happened. Then she vanished. Because the boy had been joined together by Jara, they called him Jarasand. When the boy Jarasand had grown into adolescence, his father the king and his two mothers all left for the forest to become ascetics, leaving their son to be king of Magadha. King Jarasand launched his career in a big way, making alliances with kings like Sishupal of Chedi and defeating the rest of his neighbors at war. You may recall that Jarasan launched 18 armies against Krishna's hometown of Mathura. 
The Bhagavata Purana describes these attacks as simply tolerated by Krishna to fulfill his own designs. But in this version, Krishna isn't quite so omnipotent. He openly admitted to Yudhishthira that Jarasan drove him and his people off their land and they were only able to repossess it after Jarasan's army had departed. Even combined with the armies of Indraprastha, Krishna did not feel they could overpower Jarasan's armies. Thus, Krishna advised that they use a stratagem to defeat their enemy. Krishna pointed out that Jarasand was famous for his generosity, that he never turned away Brahmins, and he always granted whatever they desired. Thus he suggested that he, Arjuna, and Bhima dress up as students, visit the kingdom of Bhagata, and request a one-on-one fight. Yudhishthira was reluctant at first to agree to this proposal, saying he could not bear to be responsible for sending his brothers to their death. But Arjuna and Bhima reassured him, saying they were born to fight. Placing the fate of his brothers and himself entirely in Krishna's hands, Yudhishthira consented to the mission, and Arjun, Bhima, and Krishna, disguised as Vedic students, or Sanatakas, set out for the kingdom of Magadha. Magadha has a mysterious resonance in this story, because in the 3rd century BCE, when our story was likely undergoing its final revisions, India was unified by the Mauryan kings of Magadha. The Maurya dynasty eventually converted to Buddhism under Ashoka. Like Yudhishthira, Ashoka was often called Dharma Raj. But despite this parallel, we simply cannot find any obvious commentary on the politics of the day, nor do we see any clear reference to Buddhism. The setting of the story, of course, is many centuries before the Buddha, but while it seems that Krishna's teaching offers a definite alternative to the Buddha, there's no hint that there was any competition with rival religious traditions. So, if readers or listeners of the 3rd century were supposed to draw a link between Jarasandha Magadha and the contemporary Magadhan rulers, I for one cannot see what those links might be. When the three companions arrived at Girivraja, the capital of Magadha, they skirted the main gate and instead snuck through a postern gate around the back. Still dressed as Vedic students, they intimidated a garland maker and forcefully took garlands from him. As Jarasan welcomed all Brahmin students, the trio went directly to the king's palace, where they were personally welcomed by the king. Jarasan was surprised by their appearance. He looked them up and down and pointed out that Brahmin students never wear garlands or smelled of perfume. He noticed that their arms were scored by bowstrings. He said, You claim to be Brahmins, but you have the bearing of warriors. Why did you enter the city by the back door? Who are you? Why did you come here? Krishna answered in a voice that was both kindly and grave. Brahmins, Kshatriyas, and commoners all have the right to be a Snataka. The strict never enter the house of their enemy by the front door. Jarasand asked, I don't remember having done anything to offend you. Why do you hold me as your enemy? Krishna then lectured Jarasand, telling him that it was wrong of him to imprison and sacrifice the defeated kings. Krishna then challenged Jarasand to fight. The proud king accepted the challenge, and it was decided that he would fight Bhima, man to man, to the death. Jarasand anointed his son Sahadev, king, just in case, and then the fighting commenced. The fight was essentially a wrestling match, except it went on day and night for 13 days. At the end of the 13th day, Jarasand disengaged out of exhaustion. At dawn of the 14th day, the fighting resumed. Sensing the king's weakness, Bhima decided to kill him, saying, Krishna, this evil man does not deserve from me the favor of life, now that I have girt my loincloth. Krishna responded, Then quickly show us the spirit you got from the gods. Show us the terrible force of the wind god on Jarasan today. 
With that encouragement, Bhima lifted the king over his head and slammed him down to the ground, causing a minor earthquake. The roars and cries of both victor and victim were so horrific that Magadan women miscarried at the sound. This wrestling match is presented in an interesting way in the Hindi TV series. The show also presents a story of how Jarasand was born in two pieces and then joined together by an ogress, so they tie that back during the wrestling match, in which Krishna signals to Bhima that he should rip Jarasand in two. Bhima does this several times, tearing him apart by the legs. Each time, the pieces reassemble and Jarasand gives a laugh and resumes fighting. Finally, Krishna tells Bhima to throw the two pieces off in separate directions, and that does the trick. Old Jarasand can't get himself back together, and he dies. The horrendous violence of the scene is offset by the fantastically primitive special effects. While the people of Girivraja were in shock over the death of their king, Krishna took charge, ordering the release of the captured kings and commandeering the king's prize chariot. The freed kings all came to Krishna in gratitude and asked him what service they could render. Krishna told them, Yudhishthira wishes to offer up the royal consecration. All of you must help him with the sacrifice. The kings agreed to this. Then Jarasand's son, the new king Sahadev, presented himself humbly before Krishna. Krishna gave the boy his blessing, and then they departed, leaving Magadha as an ally. Krishna, Arjun, and Bhima then returned to Indraprastha, with all their freed kings in tow. The kings presented themselves to Yudhishthira and pledged their allegiance with him. As the kings departed for their realms, Krishna too left for his home in Dwarka. That's all for now. Next time, the Pandavas set out to finish off their conquest of the world and get going with the royal consecration. Thanks for listening. <laughs>